We're in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're doing a series for this month that's called Christmas Praises, Praise or Praises. And the focus of this is going to be on some of the stories about the song about the birth of Christ. There were several songs given, praise songs given by individuals who are affected by it. One of them is dealing with this idea of miracles. And so oftentimes when we think about miracles, we use it in a very fluent way, in a very flippant way at times. We say something, it's a miracle that I passed my license test. Or we say something, it's a miracle that your kid cleaned up their room. Or you might make comments, it's a miracle my boss gave me a raise. Or a miracle that grandma didn't burn the turkey here this past week or so. Or it's definitely a miracle that the Vikings ever win a Super Bowl. Or we might say it's a miracle that the pastor would only preach 40 minutes. Now that's, no amens on that one, okay? We use miracle in a very flippant way. Those aren't miracles by the strictest sense of the Bible. When we go to the Bible and we say, okay, what is a miracle? It is something that is done outside of natural law. In other words, what we're talking about is an event, an occasion, a happenstance that occurred that could only have happened because of supernatural intervention in the way that things normally work. And it's not something that men could produce and contrary to popular opinion, The Bible is not filled saying that miracles were happening on a daily experience for people in the Bible times. That's not true. Miracles basically came in settings where they came in clusters. They didn't happen normal in everyday life. They did for some people more frequently than in others. Elijah and Elijah, two of the great prophets in the Old Testament. They're about a thousand years before Christ. I'll give you the time there. Between them, there was 24 different miracles that they had did in their entire ministries. When you think about it, that's really not a lot, but it was more than most. Then you have another prophet that was shortly thereafter, Daniel, and you remember the story with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had some miracles, like the lions didn't eat uh, Daniel, the men saved from the fiery furnace. And so you had a few miracles in their time, but this is the last time in the Old Testament that an angel appeared to somebody. And that happened around 600 B.C. Then you have the last prophet that's given any type of revelation. His name is Malachi. And he is around 400 B.C. He is the very last direct revelation that came from God during that Old Testament era. Then you went through a period of years before Jesus comes. And when Jesus comes, birthed right around 4 to 6 B.C., when he comes, there's going to be an immense amount of miracles. But the years in between, you're going to hear the phrase, you study your Bible, you're going to hear the silent years. Those 400 years is when there was no more message from God other than what had been written down. There were no miracles that are recorded that we know of. It was a time period where God, heaven, was silent in speaking, talking to, doing miracles in the lives of the people of Israel. Then Jesus comes along and you have a number of miracles, an explosion of miracles that took place, and everything he said was new revelation from God. Some of the miracles that occurred with Jesus occurred associated with his birth. You're familiar with them. You're familiar with the virgin birth. You're familiar with the idea of how God rescued and and provided and protected and gave direct revelation through some angels coming and speaking to individuals. Well, what we want to talk about today is one of those miracles that happened with other people beyond Mary and Joseph, Zacharias and Elizabeth, who were related to Mary and Joseph, and they experienced a miracle in their life. It's recorded in Luke chapter 1. And it's the, the account of her and him having a baby that was a miracle child because of a number of things. And when they have this child who happens to be John the Baptist, 
when he, when he comes, the parents, or when the angels hear, I'm sorry, when the angel comes to the parents, there's a reaction on their part, or when they talk about this child, they give some praises at the end of Luke chapter 1 in particular that we want to look at this morning. But I want to get the whole story about Zachariah and Elizabeth and run through it very quickly. You start to look at verses 5 and 6. It tells you there's a man by the name of Zechariah, and it gives you the information that he's a priest. He's from the tribe of Abijah, out of the, the clan of Abijah from the priestly tribe. His wife happens to be in the same lineage, but through Aaron's uh, clan. And so she comes from the priestly tribe of Levi, and it describes them. They were both righteous. That is, they were living godly lives before the Lord. In fact, it says they were walking in, in this righteousness, and they were blameless. The idea of blameless as nobody could accuse them. They were above reproach. It's the idea that they had a really, really, really good reputation within their community. Despite that, the fact that these people are old, they have been consistently living for the Lord for decades by now. The passage says that they are well stricken in years. So we know that they're a righteous couple, but they have a painful reality. It is mentioned in the midst of talking about them and describing, it says in verse 7, that it says they had no child. And it goes on to says because she was barren and now it's complicated by she's well stricken in years. And so they never could have children for all the years that, that they've been married. And if you remember in Bible days, if you lived back then, it was considered a curse if you didn't have children. They didn't understand all of the different medical aspects. They just understood that God gives children or God doesn't give children. And those who are blessed get children. Those who don't have children, they're basically unblessed. I don't want to say as strong as cursed, but that was in their mindset. In fact, the Jews wrote in one of their oral traditions that was then written down, said that there were seven things that could get you kicked out of a synagogue in time, or eventually out of the kingdom of God. One of them was this, that a Jewish man would never marry, refuse to marry. He wasn't worthy of being a part of the community in the kingdom of God. Then they added this as well. They said, if there was a Jewish couple without a child... So you get a feel of what society and what the pressure would be upon the couple thinking we've, we not only want a child, but we've got to have a child because there's all this impact that could be coming upon us. Well, the reality is this couple's been married for years. They're both stricken in years. Stricken in years is obviously, you, you read it, you understand it. It's more than being old. It is being, yeah, real ancient. Yeah, it's about our age, right? Yeah, Okay. So it's, they're a really old couple, and the, the thing is that here's this couple, the painful, they've never had children. They've never, but we're going to find out they've been praying for children, but never had a children, and yet they never become bitter towards God, that God didn't answer their prayer in all these decades. So they're a very righteous couple. But what happens is the story just gives us that background, says he's a priest, which as a priest, that means that he's one of the 18,000, 20,000 people who lived in Judea at that time of the tribe of Levi that would have to make a journey to the temple two weeks every year. They weren't two weeks back to back, but one time of the year and then another week, another time of the year. And they would go there and they would do their priestly functions. And so these priests were on rotating basis. And when they would get to Jerusalem, they would be given assignments along with hundreds of other priests that would show up for that week of service. They would be given assignments what to do, whether they would be the ushers, whether they take care of the collection, whether they take care of setting up some of the, some of the observances that they would do. But there was one job that everyone one of these priests really craved and coveted it. 
Now the high priest was the only one who once a year could come into what they called the holy place in the inner sanctum of the temple. He could go in and go all the way through the curtain where behind was the idea of the Ark of the Covenant with the Ten Commandments, the Rod of Aaron, and the Pot of Man. And he was the only one who could do that once a year during the feast days. And he could go in. But other priests were allowed to go into the first part of that chamber and stay on this side of the curtain. And so every day, once in the morning, once in the evening, one priest's name was chosen by lot and he was allowed to go in and do the morning or evening prayers. He would go into this area and at the altar of incense, he would sprinkle the different, the different incense made up of four different type of spices and it would then, it would smoke and it would represent the prayers of the people, especially the people outside, waiting outside at the morning prayer time and the evening prayer time and it would be this picture of smoke rising that your prayers are rising to heaven. One priest got this one, once in the morning and another one once in the day and they were chosen by lot and it was such an honored position once their name was chosen that was it for life they could never be rechosen to do it because everybody wanted this honor to go inside the holy place for once in their life and so what happens in this story is that here it comes Zachariah who's been a priest for decades for decades, okay, you can't be a priest until you're 30. Let's say he's 70 years old or 80 years old. He's been doing priestly work for 30, 40 years. He's been doing it every year for two weeks. He's been waiting for his name to be drawn, to be, have the honor to go inside there. And the day came here in this text that he gets to go in and his name's drawn. My, my question to you, how do you think he felt? Any input? Honored? Humbled? Okay. Would there be a, a humble excitement? You know, so he's going in, and can you imagine, he's, you know, if he's like you and me, maybe he's shaking a little bit. This is so exciting, but I'm also very nervous if I blow it. Okay, if I do something wrong. Because remember, if you're inside this holy place, and you're not right with the Lord, and you do something wrong, what's that mean? They could die. They could die instantly. So you're going in and you, want to, you don't want to tip something over. Okay, you want to be very, very careful in doing this. So he's going in and when he gets in there, he's doing his priestly duties. Then all of a sudden the story says that while he's inside, if you read it through, and it came to pass for Satan that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, and it goes on, verse 11, there appeared unto him an angel standing at the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled. Anybody have another word for that? Okay, he's startled. He's surprised. All of a sudden, here he is. He's doing this all by... He's supposed to be alone. And all of a sudden, this angel appears. Remember, it hasn't happened for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. It's not like you expected somebody there. They haven't seen angels for hundreds of years. There's been no message from God for 400 years. And all of a sudden, Zachariah's doing this. He doesn't think somebody's there. It reminds me of trying to preach at a pulpit and somebody hiding in the pulpit, reaching out and grabbing my leg. <laughs> you, know, you all laugh because you saw the video a couple weeks of how I was very startled. Okay, And so, you know, he was troubled. He was fearful. All of a sudden, he's just, whoa, what's going on here? 
And you, know, you and I would respond that same way. Now remember, when people saw these heavenly beings throughout Scripture, their typical response wasn't what we think, oh, well, you know, I would just go, hey, how are you doing? That was not the typical response. What was it when people saw angels or heavenly beings? Yeah, yeah. They, they fall down. They think they're going to die. They fall on their face. They lose all control. They, you know, Daniel says, "There's no." I, I fainted away. There was no strength in me. When Mary, it says in the, the different people who see the angel in the New Testament, Gabriel that's arriving and saying, the baby's coming. She's troubled. The shepherds, they're so afraid. John says when he sees heavenly beings, he fell down as a dead man. And so here's Zacharias. I'm surprised he, he retained his upright position number one. And so he says to this angel, he has this conversation, and the angel speaks to him and says these words that I find humorous, and yet they're absolute. Verse 13, the angel says, stop fearing. Yeah, right. It's easy for you to say, okay? But stop fearing, Zacharias. Your prayer is heard. Your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son. You're going to call him John, and you're going to have lots of joy and gladness, and many shall rejoice at his birth. He's going to be great in the sight of God. He shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He shall be filled with the Holy Spirit even in his mother's womb. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God and he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts and the fathers and the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just one to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And so he gets this message that's very simple. That's that we've already just read. He says, this is going to be an exciting thing. I'm telling you some really, really good news. You know, this is exciting. This is thrilling. This is amazing that it's all happening. You know, your, your son is going to be the one that was predicted at the very last time God spoke. To Malachi, in Malachi 4, some 400 years ago, God made a prediction that he was going to send one who was going to come and prepare the way of the Lord. And God predicted, I'm going to send somebody right before the Messiah comes. And your child is going to be the one that's predicted. Zechariah had to be thrilled. Our prayers are answered. I'm 80 years old. We're going to have a baby. The baby's going to be the one who's coming before the Messiah. This is so thrilling. This is amazing. Nobody has heard this for hundreds of years. I'm the first one to see an angel in, in 600 years. And I'm the first one to hear a message from God in 400 years. This is absolutely amazing. Is that what he did? No. You know the story. That what happens is he all of a sudden, he responds with a problem response. It says... That it says, Zechariah says, whereby shall I know this? I'm an old man. I'm so glad that he at least referred to himself before he said something about his wife. He says, I'm an old man and my wife is well stricken in years. He didn't call her an old lady. Okay? He was very polite about it. And he just responds and he says, you know, there's a problem. Now, you might struggle, and some of you will, when you come read this Christmas story. You're going to say, well, Mary said, how shall this be seeing I know not a man? So she's got the same attitude that he does. No, that's not true. We are told in the text that, that when he said, how shall this be, apparently he was saying it in unbelief. When Mary says, how can it be, I know not a man, she's asking for clarity and understanding. It's almost as if he's saying, yeah, sure, how can this be? I'm an old man and look at her. Yeah. You know, that's the way he's coming across. And the angel responds, and in this story, the angel rebukes him, and the angel even says, you did not believe me. So his response is problematic, and as a result, there's going to be some punishment. There's going to be some discipline. 
And the discipline says, and it's really, it's really interesting how this is laid out. And in the original language, it's very emphatic what the angel starts saying. And how the angel responds. Go to verse 19. What is the angel's first words out of his mouth? I am if you want to get a sense of what it was in the, in the original text, I'm Gabriel, very emphatic. I am Gabriel, the one who stands by the throne of God. Now, did they know who Gabriel was? Yeah, he was introduced in the Old Testament. He was introduced as the very last angel who appeared to Daniel twice, in Daniel 8 and Daniel 9. So they know their Bible. They know Gabriel is God's messenger to Israel. And so they're aware of that. There's only two angels that have ever been named in the Bible. Um, others are named, but they're not in biblical record. But they have the one you have Daniel, you have Michael. And this one is the one that he says, you you're doubting me? I'm Gabriel. I stand before God. So to let you know how true it's going to be, I'm going to give you a sign. It's not a positive sign. I'm going to give you a physical sign. The physical sign is you're going to be unable to speak and hear. Okay, as we learn later on, that he cannot understand when people are talking. He, they make signs to him. So he loses both the ability to speak and the ability to hear all at the same time. And the angel says, it's going to be this way until the child is, is born. You've got this temporary. We know it's going to be that way for that period of time. But it's a really serious penalty. Because most of the priests, their job back at home for the other 50 weeks of the year, back in their village, they were the teachers. They were training the people. They were teaching the kids. They could be involved in even some of the synagogue training. And so he's going to be unable to do any of that. Maybe he's been doing I don't know if he was, and I don't know if he's actively involved in that role, but that was typically the case, and if he was, he's not able to do that anymore. He's not able to declare anything until it's going to pass now nine months later. And so what happens is... Uh, he gets this rebuke, and it happens immediately. Look at the text. It says that all of a sudden the angel says, and the angel disappears. In the meantime, back at the ranch at the outdoors, the people are all standing out there, the passages, and they're beginning to wonder, what's taking him so long? What happened to him? You know, he may be slow, but he should be out by now. You know, do they, do they, do they pull him out? What are they doing? They're wondering, and they're just like, there's this long pause. And when he comes out, he's, he can't speak. He's just going to make all these gestures to them. But they understand he's seen some type of vision. He, they don't get any more, but his enthusiasm, his excitement, his whatever, his gestures, something happened inside there that hasn't happened for 400 years. It hasn't happened for 600 years to see an angel. And so it's an amazing situation. So what happens is the story says he goes home. And then it just gives us the details. He goes back home. He's deaf. He's unable to speak. And when he gets back, their life changes. She gets pregnant. You know, here they are. I'm going to throw well-stricken. Please, nobody be offended if I just put an age on well-stricken in yours at 80. I just want to get it farther from me. Okay, but... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so well-stricken in years, they say they're 80, and he goes home, and she's been unable to have a child, and they're old, too old to be making babies anymore. And so it's a miracle. It's a miracle that she conceives. And uh, not only conceives, but it's a miracle that she retains this child. You know, I mean, think, think the whole process through. It's, you know, it's, let's say an 80-year-old woman bearing a child. That's not normal, folk. So this is a, this is a miracle of God, and life changes for them. Despite the fact that, you know, they're where they're at. 
the part that throws me here is it says in the text, it says in verse 24, after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months. The reason it throws me is the next phrase. Now maybe you can figure it out. I struggle with it. It says that she starts saying this, thus hath the Lord dealt with me in the days wherein he looked on me and he took away my what? I have reproach. He took away my reproach or maybe you have another translation that says took away my shame, my disgrace. He says among men. To me, her song of praise in verse 25 sounds like she's happy for the pregnancy. Yes or no? Okay. So she's excited about it. So why does she hide herself for five months? So why does she do that? Why doesn't she want, why doesn't she walk out and say, look at me. Yeah, this is a miracle. Yeah, why isn't she more boastful? And there's a couple possibilities. You've got to figure this one out. But these are thoughts that it's clearly, the, the verbiage is she hides and stays in the house. The idea that she's not in public view. Is it because she is being practical about elderly people bearing a baby at this age? I'm going to stay in bed for nine months. Because I don't want to put any undue strain on this baby and jeopardize it. Could that be a possibility? Yes? Okay. Um, in light of her age and phase in life, she needs all the time she can get to plan for this baby. She didn't have a nursery. And even if she had, by this point, she would have given all the clothes and everything away. And so now she's got to start from scratch getting everything made, get everything prepared. And so at her age, she's probably not as... as um, Boy, I'm making, my, making older people sound really bad. I'm really sorry about this. But she's not as dex, dex... Yeah, that word. She's not as nimble with her hands sewing and things like that, so it's going to take her more time. Plus, she has a handicapped husband. So because of the workload, she just stays in the house for five months. Possibility. Okay. Possibility, she is so overwhelmed by I have this responsibility of raising this child who's got to be a very special child and I've got to prepare myself to be the mother to train this child. It's going to be a miracle baby but that doesn't mean I don't have the work to put in in training this child. And so she's going to really focus in on reading, studying, preparing, nurturing herself. Um, that's a possibility. Could it be she isn't going to go out in public and say, I'm pregnant, I'm pregnant. And people are going, yeah, you're nuts. You just wanted this baby so bad. You're just, you know. And she's going to wait until there's absolute visual proof. And then she's going to go out and then she'll let people know. Is that a possibility? Yeah. Um, is it a possibility she's just so overwhelmed with thanksgiving and praise that she just... She just wants to cluster in and be on the mountaintop like the disciples when they saw Jesus in the transfiguration. Can we stay here all the time? And she just wants to stay there and just give God praise. That's a possibility. Is it the possibility that um, she was not going to make any mention of her pregnancy at all because he's the forerunner of Jesus. She'll wait until Mary comes to her house and we predict this that the child in your womb is the Christ child, and so he stay quiet, don't do anything until the Christ baby infant fetus shows up. We'll get into that this evening. Is that a possibility? It's a possibility, but to me that's the most remote because she didn't know if Mary was coming. 
Um, but be that as it may, those, those options. She hid herself for five months. And then what happens is she makes her remarks after that, she's, which we read. And she's praising God. Oh, God, this is so joyful. Oh, God, you took away my embarrassment, my shame, my, you know, my self-esteem. I, I just didn't think I was worth anything because I couldn't bear my husband a baby. All those things are gone. She's excited. So what do we get from all of that? What do we grab from that? Can I give you just a few thoughts that, that come out of this story? Can I point out to you that God is worthy of our praise and trust? Because, because number one, no matter how much time passes by, God keeps his word. God had predicted 400 years before, I'm going to send a messenger before the Messiah comes. And God did this 400 years after 400 years, you would begin to wonder, did God really mean it? And so here he is, he's saying, I'm, I'm, you're the one, the messenger is coming. God keeps what he promises, for good or for bad. God's word is accurate when he says, your sin will find you out. God's word is absolutely true when he says, you'll reap what you sow. God's word is absolutely positively going to happen when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you who are believers. It's going to happen. In fact, he says, if it were not so, I wouldn't have told you. So we look and we say, yeah, is, is the rapture really going to happen? I mean, it's getting so bad in the United States. Is he coming back? And the answer is, yes. Does God, does God really keep his word where it says, my word will not return unto me void? When we give it out and some people don't respond to it, will God keep his word and bring conviction where his word is? The answer is, Yes. If I invest and I work with my children, will God work in their heart like he had said and promised that as I train up a child in the way he should go, when he is old, that he will follow that path? Does God work in that, with that promise of helping my child? The answer is yes. But some days, not 400 years, but just four days in a week, some of you as parents, you know what it's like. You go, I want to put them back. It's not getting any better. And so God keeps his word. There's another lesson that stands out. It is this. Even when God doesn't matter to some, he's still in control. The some I have in mind here are the critics who have denied God. Did you read, did you catch where we just glossed over it? The very beginning of the story? Do you remember what it started out? There was in the days of who? Herod, the king of Judea. Was Herod a good guy? Was he a believer? Did he make it hard for the true believers? Yeah, in fact, when Christ's child is born, yeah, he wants to kill him off. So in the day when there is this corruption in politics, in the day when there's corruption in the temple, which there was, in the religious system of the Jews, this was when that whole idea of the shepherds being out in the fields, they're watching the flocks that are belonging to the priests who sell them for jacked up prices. That's a corruption in the temple. In those days, God is still in control. And you and I need to remember that our answer is not in some national political convention that will be held or an election next year. Our faith and trust has to be in God. He's in control. It doesn't make any difference who's elected. But we want to make an influence. But our God hasn't lost control of the situation just because the Democrats or the Republicans are in control. Our God is in control. 
And so we need to remember that. And we need to put our faith and trust in God who may not have everything working the way we want it because we're headed towards the end times, but he's working his plan and he's in control. I see another lesson that's really important, that God deserves my praise, my trust, because even when things seem impossible, God can do the unimaginable. For Zachariah and Elizabeth, he makes it very clear. This is impossible for my wife to have a baby. It is impossible. Both of us, we're beyond these years. Our inabilities doesn't hinder God. Let's, bring, let's take it away from some of the physical inabilities. Let's put it in the spiritual inabilities. Some of us feel extremely handicapped spiritually. We feel like we can't produce the gospel in a clear presentation. But God can work through you. God can use you. That God is able to do the unimaginable as you share your faith this Christmas season. He can save some of your relatives who are hard-hearted, who are, who are resisting right now. You can be used in a phenomenal way because God's not limited. God can use normal, everyday people like you. Let me give you another reason why I want to praise and I want to trust God. Even when God seems absent at times, He's really there and He cares. He's really there and He cares. The reason I say that is this. They have been praying for years and there's been no answer that they wanted. The answer has been no, 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 no. But he says, your prayers have been heard. It's not his prayers right there at the moment. We're referring to prayers that were made while they were still of age to be bearing children. And he's saying, all these prayers that you have prayed for years, they've been heard. They've not been answered the way you wanted because God had a different timetable than you have. But God has been hearing that. And even though God has been hearing, God has graciously been planning. And, but, but in the meantime, you've been sorrowing. You've been hurting. You've been suffering, Zachariah. Your wife has been carrying a tremendous burden for years, unable to bear a child. This has been a heartbreak for her. And God has not chosen to intervene yet. But God is going to restore her joy. I promise I will take away her shame. And so God worked, but his working was in his timetable, and it was so subtle and yet miraculous. Miraculous in that she could conceive. Subtle in this fact. How is, when he's been serving in the temple, let's just throw a time, four decades, been there twice a year, for those 14 days, his name was never drawn until that day. How was that? It's a God thing. It's God's working. It's when God is, we say, where are you, God? What are you doing? God is still there. And God still cares. Does he know about your heartache? Yes. Does he know about your disappointments? Absolutely yes. But in his time frame, all things work together for to them that love the Lord. And we need to praise him and trust him even in those moments. We need to look around for those little moments to be cognizant of them. And we need to remember that the ultimate goal here is the future. The future with joy and gladness. That it's going to be, that, that's promised. By the way, it just doesn't always work in our timetable. Let me, let me give you an instance without trying to share too much information. 
This past weekend, one of our members, founding members, Janet Hoy, passed away and is with the Lord. She's doing great. When her husband, Bill, uh, passed away a number of years ago, Bill was in our church. Again, they were founding members. And uh, Bill had suffered, um, had a heart attack, and during surgery he suffered a stroke, and he was confined mostly to a wheelchair for several years. And when he came to the end of his days, they were, the family was gathering, they took him home where they could keep an eye on him, and they were doing what some of you families have done. They have gathered for, I, I don't have a better word, they were ga- gathering for a death vigil, a time for family to gather. And the hospice came in, and the hospice said, every sign, every physical sign, 24 hours. 24 hours. Can't be much more than that. Well, the 24 hours passed. Another 24 hours passed. Another 24 hours passed. The man wasn't taking any nourishment, but he was in this spot. Communication was pretty much nil, uh, no, no nourishment. And if I recall, the, the figure was like 27 days. We are thinking, we are thinking, why? Why? Lord, where are you? Why don't you take him home? Unbeknownst to us, there was a family member that was out of the country at the time. We knew that, but unbeknownst how it worked out. The family member was doing business in China for the government and could not get out of China. Could not get out of China, could not get out of China, could not get out until that period of time was almost all gone. I don't remember when TF was able to get back, if it was the day Bill died or the next day. I don't remember that detail, but I do remember preaching the service, and that, that man of their family who could not get back here until that time of the service, he was in the service sitting over here and prayed and got saved. Did God know the timing was going to be perfect? That same thing has happened. And if you, you can get the details. Doris can share with you, with her mother's passing, how God's timing, and even something like lingering, how God used that in the life of somebody who came from hospice. Kevin can tell you the same thing just two weeks ago that happened in his life, why Andrea was lingering, and God used it to minister to somebody in a very special way that they would not have had contact with if it hadn't been those days stretched out. God can do that, and God knows, but I sit back and go, Lord, please, why don't you take them home? Why don't you hasten this up? But God's timing is best for the future. And you can, you can find this time and time again, but when we're in those moments, we forget it. We just say, I'm heartbroken. I'm sad. But we forget God knows what he's doing. That's why he deserves our praise and trust. Because he knows. He knows. Can you give me another thought? He deserves my praise and trust. When we struggle with him, he doesn't struggle with us. The reason I say that is, did Zechariah struggle with the message from God? He did. He did. So so you tell somebody, I'm going to do this, and they say, sure. And our heart's response is, well, then, fine, I won't do it. Does God do that to him? Does God say, oh, if you didn't believe me, that's it, I'm not going to do this anyway. Not at all. God performed what he said, even though Zechariah doubted. Aren't you glad God keeps his promises even though we doubt sometimes? 
Because sometimes we just say, did you really forgive me? And the, and the passage says, if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us. And I'm so glad he keeps his word when sometimes I doubt. Did you really mean it when you said, whosoever shall call shall be saved? Does that mean me? I'm so glad he keeps his word. Even when I struggle. There's a passage that says this. It's a song in the New Testament. If we be dead with him, we shall live with him. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't that sweet? Our God is always faithful even when we stumble. Thank God. Thank Jesus that he deserves our praise and our trust because of that. Can I give you something else? Even when there's a great work of God to be done, he uses regular people. That's the amazing part of this story. Zachariah and Elizabeth weren't anything special in position. He was a priest. She was a priest's daughter. They lived for years in an unknown village. We don't even know where they lived. But he happened to be the one that God was going to use. By God's choice, even here they were, they were godly people. You have the same thing with, with you know, Mary and Joseph. They weren't exceptional people. We'll get into that more this evening to, to combat what some churches say. But according to the Bible, they were just regular people like you. John the Baptist, their son, is used by God in a phenomenal way. He's just, it's an amazing story that he's raised by regular people. And yes, he's the appointed prophet, but he is, he is one of the most amazing characters in Scripture. Do you remember what Jesus said about him in Luke chapter 7? The, the story is, is the idea that John struggled. Now, now, let me back up. Let me give you, according to this text... John is going to have t- tremendous personal commitment. You look at what it's, it describes him. It says, He shall be great in the sight of God and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink, according to verse 15. The idea of in the sight of God is very important that God is looking, God is judging. He may not be great in the eyes of people, but in God's eyes, he's going to be great. One of the reasons is he's going to be personally committed. He takes what's called the vow of the Nazarite, that what happens is he's going to do this lifelong. There's only two other people in scriptures that ever did this for the lifelong. One was Samson and one was uh, Samuel, if I'm not mistaken. Um, And then here he is, hundreds of years later, he's going to do this where he's not going to be involved with what people would look at and say were some of the pleasures of the world that weren't forbidden, but they were were more pleasure-oriented. He wouldn't do that. He was going to be very focused on serving the Lord, and as a result, he was going to have this calling of God that he had this special job to be the messenger, to proclaim Christ. But here's the part that is interesting that you relate to. He's going to have the Holy Spirit in him from, his, from, his, from the being in the womb on. You have the Holy Spirit as soon as you are birthed by Jesus Christ. You know, born into Christ, you have the Holy Spirit. And as a result of all that, it says he's going to make powerful contributions. The powerful contributions in the text is he's going to turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord. Remember, there's 400 years that's been silent. He's going to come on the scene and he's going to create this revival that's going to turn families back to one another. He's going to be used of God to bring people, the disobedient or hard-hearted, to the wisdom of following God's word. By the way, the word where it says he's going to turn, he's going to convert people to the Lord. And he's going to make great people ready for the Lord. I look at that and I say, "This, this guy's an amazing guy. God used him in a very special way. And Jesus comments later on, when John is in jail, if you remember the story, John struggles. John sends a messenger to Jesus and says, are you really the one that we 
we've expected. A few months before, John has said, Behold the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world. Now he sends a messenger because he's in jail, things aren't going well, and he says, Are you really the one? Do you remember this? And Jesus says, Go back, John, John's messengers, go back, tell John all the great things that you see, how I'm doing all the miracles predicted in Isaiah. And they leave. And then Jesus turns to the crowd and he says this to the crowd. He says, among those born of women, there is not a single greater prophet than John the Baptist. He's the greatest of the men. Why is that? Why was he con- Jesus considering him so great? Well, he doesn't have all the degrees and the money and the different things that people think are great. But his contributions, he turned many to the Lord. God used him in a phenomenal way. What I, what I find interesting comforting, challenging, rebuking, whatever word you want to put there, is what Jesus said next. Do you remember the next phrase Jesus said? He that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. How is that possible? How can you and I, who have accepted Christ as our Savior, and are going to be in the kingdom... How can we be considered greater than John the Baptist in the eyes of God? How is that possible? I think the least is an ordinary person, a humble person who's serving God, like many of you. Ordinary folk. How does God say, I'll give you an A+. Giving John an A, I'll give you an A+. How is it that God would consider... Think this through. We right now have greater help at our disposal than John did. Spiritually, we have more help than John did. You don't agree with that? We do. We have more spiritual substance. You've got more spiritual knowledge than John the Baptist had. The reason I say that is you know more of the story than John knew. John never knew the crucifixion. John never knew about the resurrection. He never saw those things. John didn't know what you know about the plan of God and how he was working this. You have a far more complete message that you can share than John did. You have more knowledge than John did. You have the full scriptures. John didn't have that. John and you both share the Holy Spirit if you're born again. But you also have a body of Christ with spiritual help. John didn't have a body of Christ. He had critics. So you look at it and go, John did a great task, but we even have more opportunities than John did. John's hung around the river. That was his place. You can travel how far in this day and age? You, and your, you can sit at home and how far can you travel? You can do the world. You can reach people that John never even imagined lived, and you're aware of that. You can make even more powerful contributions to the kingdom of God in witnessing and saving souls than John ever did. And I look at this text and go, hey, ordinary people God uses. He helps them, but he uses as long as they're like Zachariah and Elizabeth, they're committed. As long as they're like John, they're committed. They're willing to follow him. Our God is worth our praise, our trust, our commitment to follow, to worship, to serve, to sing praises to, 
to say we want to follow him. And as we sing our praise this morning about this child, if you don't know you're on your way to heaven, right over here, half is gathering by those doors. They will gladly share the word of God with you. Just go that way. Ask them to show you from the Bible how you can be sure you're going to heaven. They'll gladly do that as we just sing about our great God that we should praise and trust this Christmas season.